0: Based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology, submissions are due June fifteenth. Visit scienceorg eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science podcast for November twenty fourth, twenty twenty three. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week: Amped up supercomputers help make super science. Staff writer Bob Service joins me to discuss how exascale computers, capable of a quintillion calculations per second, are enabling big leaps in how scientists are able to model the world. Next, solving the dolomite problem. Producer Megan Cantwell talks with researchers June Soo Kim and Wen Hao Sun about what it took to finally grow this common mineral in the lab. Finally, book's host Angela Saini is back. This time, she's in the hot seat talking about her own book. Science Books editor Valerie Thompson and I chat with Angela about what history, archaeology, and biology reveal about the origins of the patriarchy. I've been hearing a lot about advances in computers and in modeling lately. Last week, I talked to Paul Vucin about artificial intelligence taking on weather forecasting and going toe-to-toe with supercomputers. And this week, we have exascale computers, which is a whole step up for supercomputers. Bob Service is a staff news writer for science, and he talked with researchers about what this new generation of supercomputers can do for science. Hi, Bob. Hi, Sarah. So, okay, exascale sounds big, but how exactly do we talk about the size of computing power? What's the the unit of measure?
1: So, the unit of measure is something called a floating point operation. And basically, it's just a fancy term for a mathematical operation.
0: Mm-hmm. And we can call it flops.
1: Yeah, flops. So, yeah, people in the business call them flops. An exascale computer is capable of performing at least one exaflop. And exa is just a shorthand for a quintillion, which is one with 18 zeros after it.
0: Okay, one with 18 zeros. Got it.
1: It's a billion, billion mathematical operations per second.
0: That does sound like a lot. That sounds. It's a lot. Extreme. And how does that compare with what my laptop or a typical desktop
1: could do? There's different versions, but, you know, a million times greater, at least. They're amazingly powerful machines.
0: And as I mentioned, this is a step up from supercomputers of yesterday. How long have we had exascale
1: computers? There's a list researchers compile a list of the top 500 computers, and they, they update that list every uh, six months. And so two years ago, the top computer on that list was capable of about 540 petaflops. That was a machine in Japan still operating. So the current best one is a machine at Oak Ridge National Laboratory called Frontier, And that is capable of 1.1 exaflops. So it's more than two times more powerful than the machine that was at the top of the list just two years ago.
0: And so one other important thing I, I learned when I was reading about this type of technology is that this is all in one place. It's a computer that is all in one housing or one building. It's not distributed computing, which can do some of this in a different way, right? Some of this calculation.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, like the cloud computers from Microsoft or Amazon, other other companies are extremely powerful in distributed computing. But this is different. This These are single machines housed in one particular facility.
0: Mm-hmm. What makes that an important distinction?
1: They've really been designed to try to do different things. The single machines are really ideally able, like no other kinds of machines, to carry out advanced simulations of very large problems. The cloud computing machines are really good at things like AI and large language models, trainings, and things like that. So right now, the way the technology has evolved is that they're kind of ideally suited for different things, but that could change.
0: Yeah. So you you got to really report on the science effects of
1: this. Yeah, I went to the um, SC23 meeting in Denver last week, so it was a lot of fun.
0: And that's where you met researchers who were using exascale computers for doing their research.
1: Yeah, it's a supercomputing meeting, so it covers all areas under the sun in supercomputing, but a big theme at the meeting was exascale.
0: What did you find out about how exascale is helping science?
1: The real advance here, and it is very impressive, is is that to some degree, all Computers can simulate or model things on a pretty precise level, but normal machines or smaller supercomputers can only do this with a certain level of resolution. Exascale machines give you the ability to sharpen that resolution much finer so you can see more detail in, say, the physics of how climate is evolving or something like that. But they also allow you to broaden your view of that. So you can look over a longer time horizon, for example, or you can look at a larger piece of material to see how electrons are flowing through a material and therefore how it might have the properties that it has. So it's really a combination of both finer resolution and a broader view. And together, that's really helping reveal a lot of great science.
0: Is it? hard to write software to run on a supercomputer? And is it harder to run stuff
1: on an exascale computer? (laughs) As a journalist, I'm just going to say yes, because, you know, since (laughs) I don't have to do it. Yeah, no, these are these are intensely complicated machines. And so there is a particular challenge in writing for exascale. So the previous jump was petascale. That's a thousand times less powerful or less fast than an exascale machine. And when they made that jump, they made some big changes to the hardware of these machines. And so, for example, with the Frontier machine at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, previous supercomputers were based primarily on CPU technologies. These are central processing units. These are the computer chips at the core of your laptop or what have you. And in recent years, we've probably a lot of us have heard about GPUs, and these are graphical processing units. These are at the heart of gaming consoles and Bitcoin operations and things like that. They're really good at certain kinds of mathematical operations. So Frontier married those two technologies. They brought in a whole lot of GPUs into their traditional CPU structure. And to do that, They had to make a lot of hardware changes, but then all the people who write software for these machines had to write it so that all of these devices could communicate with each other. A whole new level of complexity.
0: I want to circle back to the science again, just to make sure I didn't miss anything from your story. Are there any particular modelings or research studies or anything like that you want to talk about that you encountered when you were doing your reporting?
1: I, I would say there's two that were really favorites of mine. One We've all heard about climate models, the very large computer models that try to simulate how weather will evolve over not just the next week, but over the next year, the next 10 years, over decades, right? Because we're all trying to figure out what are the likely scenarios for how the climate is going to evolve as you know humanity adds more and more greenhouse gases. So one of the big bugaboos in this area has been clouds clouds reflect sunlight, and so they can help to cool the planet. So the challenge is is getting your physics of your models correct to show how clouds will behave in these models. And that's been really hard because the models have a certain resolution depending on the size of the computer. So the move to exascale has allowed them to sharpen that resolution. One of the teams who presented at the meeting. Uh, won one of the top prizes at the meeting. And it was for showing that using the Frontier system, they could improve the resolution of their model to go from 100 kilometers on a side to just three kilometers on a side. And that jump enabled them to capture the physical processes that give rise to clouds and thunderstorms and a lot of these events that tend to drive climate circulation And that they believe over time, as they continue to work on these, do simulations and lots of them, should help them sharpen their ability to understand how clouds will influence climate.
0: That's great. All right. So you said you had two favorites. So what was the other example of?
1: Another favorite was on the materials side and, and researchers worked together to show that they could When you're trying to model the behavior of a material, researchers tend to look at the behavior of electrons because those electrons tend to govern the chemical reactions. They tend to govern the electronic behavior. So they've been able to do this with small amounts of material in a highly accurate way for a long time, using quantum many-body equations. That allows you to look at a few tens of uh, electrons. They showed that they could marry this theoretical framework with a framework that takes a much broader view of electrons and materials. And by doing so, they could get the same, essentially the same accuracy as the fine structure theoretical framework gets, but for all the way up to 600,000 electrons. And that's only going to get better. So that allowed them to understand these really kind of exotic materials called quasi-crystals. They also modeled the behavior of magnesium alloys. And basically this theoretical framework has opened the door to looking at the details of how materials behave in a whole new way.
0: That's great. So those are some really concrete examples of how this jump up in computing power can help science. So what comes after exascale? Is there an upper bound on how many numbers of operations per second we can get with this kind of computer?
1: Well, next up is Zeta scale, so be uh-huh. ten. Yeah, it's 10 to the 21. But truth be told, there's a lot of discussion at the meeting about what's next. And most researchers will frankly tell you that they don't know. Most hardware experts acknowledge that What has really been driving this relentless trend towards higher and higher performing supercomputers and computers in general is something called Moore's Law. And a lot of us have probably heard about that. That's where as you continually shrink the size of the transistors and devices year by year by year, as engineers get better and better at making them. You can pack more of them in a smaller area, they use less power, so the computers just get more and more powerful. That's why our cell phones today are so much more powerful than they were even 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and laptops and everything else. And that same trend is driving has been driving everything for supercomputers. That trend, though, Moore's Law, is really plateauing. It's really slowed down. Then the question becomes, well, how might the community get there? They have a lot of ideas. Adding things like quantum computing for certain operations might be a one path forward, but then you'd have to sort of make a hybrid of the two technologies. But that's, there's a lot of people thinking about that. Another is is something they call mixed precision operations. So in current supercomputers, they all have a certain level of mathematical precision that is required for all the mathematical operations. You can think of it as just the number of decimal places out to which they will calculate something. Every single calculation might not need that. So they're saying, okay, can we relax some of the constraints and some of the requirements for some of the mathematical operations and some of the calculations that these computers do? And if so... Some people think that that might give them a tenfold boost. So maybe you get up to 10x x scale, but that might not work for every kind of application. So then the question becomes as well, do we want to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a new machine or more to do something like that when maybe not everybody could use it?
0: Interesting. All right, Bob, I really appreciate you talking with us today. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, This has been great. Thank you, Sarah.
0: Bob Service is the staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for producer Megan Cantwell and researchers Jun Soo Kim and Wen Hao Sun and their discussion of getting out of the dolomite doldrums. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S,
2: to apply today. The dolomites are a stunning, towering mountain range in Italy. And the namesake mineral making up these mountains has been quite the mystery to scientists. Crystals usually grow when solutions are super saturated with the components needed to make up its structure. But not dolomite. Although there's plenty of magnesium, calcium, and carbonate in seawater, modern-day dolomite is only found in environments that undergo lots of fluctuations in pH and solidity like salty lagoons. Meanwhile, dolomite that crystallized in the past is found all throughout the geologic record. Despite over two centuries of effort, no one has been able to grow dolomite in the lab under normal temperatures and pressure. This has perplexed researchers so much that it's been dubbed the dolomite problem. I'm here with Junsu Kim and Wenhao Sun, who just might have cracked this long-standing conundrum. Thank you both so much for joining me.
3: Uh, It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us.
2: Maybe to start with, Wenhao, could you talk a little bit about what theories researchers had tested in the past to try to grow dolomite in the lab?
3: Sure. So a lot of people who have studied dolomite before, they were thinking that there would be sulfate reduction or other sorts of processes that might involve microbes that would generate dolomite. This was an idea that was published in Nature, I would say, probably 1990s and has been a big driver in the field of biomineralization. And there have been a series of papers that have come out that have said that there's no way that microbes could have generated so much dolomite, such that it covers 30% of the dolomite carbonate mineralogy in the earth. So that was one of the ideas to me that started thinking that even if microbes were involved in the formation of dolomite, it still doesn't explain why dolomite doesn't form naturally in solutions where there are no microbes. So there was still something to be solved there from a mineralogy and crystal growth perspective.
2: You were initially figuring out whether nucleation, just like the crystal forming, like the very, very beginning was the limiting factor versus whether it was the growth. Could you kind of talk a little bit about how you were able to tease out what part is the dolomite getting held up at in terms of growing?
3: Materials want to form a bulk crystal, but at the very small nanoscale, when atoms are coming together, you have a lot of excess energy associated with surfaces. And that's because at a surface, you have what's called broken bonds. Materials that want to grow They have to overcome all this broken bond energy that on the surface in order for it to continue growing. We thought maybe that because dolomite wasn't growing, that maybe it had a high barrier. And so I calculated back in my PhD, so like 10 years ago, that the surface energy of dolomite was actually not that high. With a low surface energy, dolomite should be nucleating. So it wasn't the nucleation barrier that was stopping dolomite from growing or precipitating. It was definitely something else. And that's kind of what led us into this research of the growth mechanisms.
2: Knowing that the problem likely wasn't with the nucleation of dolomite, but instead the growth, Junsu, how did you and Wenhao decide to move forward and figure out exactly what part of the growth process was preventing dolomite from precipitating?
4: One day I was taking this lecture from Professor Francis Ross from MIT. She's a electron microscope expert. And one of her lectures, I saw a video where a growing material under pulsated voltage where like voltage is transiently moving from positive voltage to negative voltage easily changed its morphology. And to me, it occurred if you are in a dynamic environment, the thermodynamics of the growing material can change easily. So that was when I first had the idea. When I progressed through all of the simulations and stuff, I really could find out that that was really the reason why dolomite was not growing.
2: In the past, people have been able to make the precursor to dolomite, the proto dolomite, but not been able to actually progress it into actual dolomite with its crystal structure, which is super structured in order. When, how I'm curious if you could talk about how you were able to figure out the progression from the disordered structure to the ordered structure
3: I studied the dolomite problem a little bit during my PhD. When you look at the surface structure on which dolomite grows, the steppage is very ordered. So it's calcium, magnesium, calcium, magnesium, calcium, magnesium. And so back then, I had already started to think that calcium and magnesium are kind of similar crystal ion sizes. And so they should have a very high propensity to swap with one another. And that means that on the growing surface, instead of bringing calcium, magnesium, calcium, magnesium, The entropy of disordering ought to overwhelm what I would call the enthalpy of ordering, which would cause the crystal to disorder during growth. So that was the idea that I had many years ago, that this would be the mechanism that stops dolomite from growing in the lab. It really was Junsu's, I would say, genius in figuring out that there was this dissolution aspect that would be needed to remove the disordered regions and allow it to grow back slightly more ordered than before. Getting rid of the disordered regions was really the key to solving, I would say, the dolomame problem.
2: Do you want to speak on that a little, Junsu? How the initial structure of it is not what its final structure is going to be and what iterations it has to go through in order to reach that finalized crystal structure that's really ordered.
4: If you have a large surface, it's going to be disordered, but you're still going to have little regions that are going to be ordered. When calcium and magnesium are preserved in the ordered state, there are slightly more thermodynamically stable compared to the disordered state. So in a kinetic Monte Carlo simulation, it's more likely going to dissolve the disordered regions rather than the ordered regions. But if you keep the solution in a very supersaturated state, the dissolution reaction itself is going to be suppressed no matter the ordering. If it's disordered or ordered, it doesn't matter really that much if it's in a highly supersaturated state. So in my simulation, I found out that the dissolution reactions and the Precipitation reactions, they were different in a ratio of 10 to the power of 10 or 12. It means that the reaction for the dissolution is going to be really slow. So there had to be a way to significantly accelerate the reaction for dissolution.
2: You weren't actually doing experiments in the lab, thinking of a theory, and then immediately executing that experimentally. You were instead modeling this on a computer. What sort of settings are you able to manipulate in this sort of simulation? How exactly does it work?
4: Kinetic Monte Carlo is a simulation where, let's say that you are in one state and you're trying to progress to another state by chemical reactions. And the kinetic Monte Carlo, it's a random process where the probability is based on how fast the chemical reaction is. So if you have two different reactions where one is really fast and one is really slow, There's a high probability that the faster reaction would take place. So, if the state is thermodynamically stable, then the likelihood is that it's not going to change its state. Great thing about kinetic Monte Carlo simulation is that it doesn't care how long the reaction takes. No matter how long one step of reaction takes, it is still going to proceed that chemical reaction within a short amount of time as it normally does to just progress one step of reaction.
2: Based on your simulation, how long would it take for that crystal structure to actually be completely ordered versus from your starting point where there's some parts of the crystal structure that are disordered and other parts that are ordered?
4: In our simulation, it showed
3: that just to get one layer perfectly ordered, it takes tens of millions of years that's at a constant supersaturation, tens of millions of years and not fluctuating supersaturations.
2: Could you talk about the time difference between if you're doing that alternation between supersaturation and not as saturated versus if the solution is supersaturated the entire time?
4: In a simulation, you can do whatever you want. And in our paper, we wrote that we can reduce that by a factor of 10 to the seven, which means like you can do that in a year. And we actually when we did that experiment with our TM collaborator. He proved that he can do within hours.
2: Well, that seems like a good transition. When how, how did this collaboration start to translate the simulation results into a dolomite crystal forming in the real world?
3: I've been attending crystal growth conferences for a very long time. I met Professor Yukin Kimura, and he was using something called crystal growth interferometry to study how very small amounts of growth in crystals could result in interferometry patterns. And so I called him and I said, do you still do the crystal growth interferometry? And he says, actually, pretty much nobody does crystal growth interferometry anymore. I was very disappointed. And I thought, like, well, OK, well, that's the end of that experiment, the collaboration. And then he suggested, oh, well, there's actually a new experiment that we've been doing that I think might work. And so he says that he does in-situ TEM. And in-situ TEM, there's this really special thing where if the beam strength is too strong, it's really bad to watch crystal growth because it'll accidentally dissolve your carbonate crystals. And then he said, that actually might be perfect here. Because in this situation, what you want to do is you want to pulse a little bit of bright TM beam, and that would dissolve a little bit of the top layer. And then if you turn the beam off, if you're running a constantly supersaturated solution, then it would re-supersaturate the solution. And by doing that pulsing every two seconds, and we did it over the course of two hours, we saw 300 layers of dolomite growth, which is more than anyone's ever seen before near ambient conditions. The most anyone had ever seen before that was one to five layers of dolomite growth. In situ. Now, if you do the math, it turns out to about ten dissolution cycles to grow a single layer. What's happening in my mind is that when it rains, it undersaturates, or if there's some sort of tidal flow, then it undersaturates, and then it resupersaturates once the rain evaporates. And so, if you do that ten times, you might grow one monolayer of dolomite. And I think it's quite amazing still that if you did that over hundreds of millions of years you might form the Dolomite Mountains, or you might form these enormous Dolomite deposits.
2: It is really interesting thinking about the fact that this experiment was only two hours long, but with alternations of saturation and supersaturation every two seconds in the real world, that would take just so, so long to actually happen.
3: Of course, of course. What we did was certainly not physical, but it really, I think, proves the point that supersaturation fluctuations are the key mechanism behind Dolomite growth. And the fact that we are able to do this is just to prove the physics of this idea.
2: Do the conditions where you find whatever you would define as modern Dolomite, considering the geologic record, does it kind of match with what you found from your experimental results in terms of the conditions where we currently find it growing today?
4: Geologists already have published a lot of research that say that modern dolomites are normally found in coastal environments or evaporative environments. These environments are vulnerable to strong evaporation or when fresh water is flooding, it's also vulnerable to lowering the pH or even lowering the concentration of the ingredients, which are calcium and magnesium ions. Where you have salinity fluctuation or pH fluctuation, especially in these environments, when water is evaporating, the supersaturation level can be super high. But when the season changes and fresh water is suddenly flooding, the supersaturation can be undersaturated. So yeah, it's totally analogous. What we did here is an atomistic investigation. We think that we are presenting a good mechanism how to grow dolomite in the laboratory, but still nobody has really investigated out there in the field. So I guess it's an open question for the geologist to solve if there has been a significant salinity or pH fluctuation in nature in order to form dolomite.
2: We've talked a lot about geology in this segment, but you're both material scientists. Based on the solution that you found to the dolomite problem, is this applicable to the work you're doing now? How can it kind of maybe change the approaches you have to future problems in your field?
3: I think there are a lot of analogies in material science and engineering where this is also very relevant. For example, there are a lot of solar cell materials where disorder can really degrade the optical properties of the solar cell material. Normally, people would just try to grow the ordered phase very, very, very slowly. That would be the traditional thought process for how to grow ordered materials. And what we're showing here is that if you want to grow an ordered solar cell, maybe what you would do is you would dissolve a little bit during your growth. That would help dissolve the disordered regions. And then when you grow, it might grow a little bit more ordered than you had before. And so by pulsing the supersaturation and the undersaturation, you might be able to have a nice new solar cell material. And so to me, it's a really fundamental mechanism of crystal growth, the idea of using supersaturation fluctuations. And that's personally what I'm very excited about contributing from this work. There's a lot of really wonderful stories in geology and geochemistry and mineralogy where by better understanding how minerals form, we can derive new theories to guide how functional materials might form. And so that's what interests me so much about this whole space.
2: Well, thank you guys so much both for your time on this. Thank you. Wen Sun is the Dow Early Career Professor of Material Science and Engineering at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Junsu Kim is a graduate student in the same lab. You can find a link to their paper at science.org slash podcasts. Don't touch that dial. Up next, books host Angela Saney
0: talks with me and books editor Valerie Thompson about Angela's new book, The Patriarchs, The Origins of Inequality. This week, we're turning the tables on Angela Saini. She's been hosting our book series on sex and gender, which just wrapped up last month. But for this bonus segment, we're instead interviewing Angela on her book, The Patriarchs, The Origins of Inequality. In the book, she argues that while they may appear strong and inevitable, today's patriarchal systems are anything but preordained. They had to start sometime and come from somewhere. In The Patriarchs, Angela brings together insights from anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians to take on commonly invoked myths about gender inequality, that it's biological that it's universal in human societies now and in the past, and that it's something that we're never actually going to solve permanently. She argues instead that gendered power structures are constantly being renegotiated and reasserted. On top of having Angela this week, we also are joined by Valerie Thompson, who is Science's book editor and a big participant in putting together our book series every year. Hi, Valerie.
5: Hi, Sarah. Hi, Angela.
0: Hi. Hi, Angela. So happy to have you on the other side of the microphone, computer.
5: Yeah, this, is a, this is a bit strange for me, I'll be honest. <laughs>
0: but it's a pleasure.
5: <laughs> right. Thank you.
0: I just want to point out that when we were planning our series on sex and gender, I was like, I really want a book that covers this topic. And you, you didn't say we could cover my book. Angela, you were so generous. Like you were, I was just like,
6: she's gotta say it. Like she's gotta say, like this. I got, you know, I have a book on this topic coming
0: out. What if we covered that? No. Book? But you did it. You, you held off and, and now we're gonna talk about it anyway. So I'm I'm really excited. <laughs> I know, thank you. This question for me is is such a is such a, a mind freak. <laughs> like, where did the patriarchy come from? And how people answer that, like their first reaction to it seems like such a, a prism on like what they kind of, under the surface, think about how gender relations work today. Oh, it's because men were stronger and that slight (laughs) advantage millennia ago has set us up for the entirety of human history. That's what happened.
5: No. I know, and a lot of people still think that. I mean, that idea that physical strength or size is somehow the way that we organize social hierarchies, we know that that's not the case because we only have to look around to see that the most powerful people in our society are generally old men. Yeah, <laughs> you know, not, not, They're not weightlifters. They're not, you know, absolutely the strong athletes. Yeah. So it's power is not about, it's not just about strength. I think that's an aspect of it, but it's about alliances, networks. It's really about people, the populations you can amass around you.
0: Yeah. And I think you deal with some of the main concepts that people would have kind of assumed where patriarchy come from pretty early in the book. But then you turn to some of these deeper ideas that have a lot more to untangle. Like this one, some experts believe that the turning point for gender inequality was agriculture. When humans started to keep property or it came with the adoption of certain religious practices, there are a few even, you know, now who are still thinking that, you know, it's men's dominant nature that have put them in charge of society. Did any of those theories turn out to be somewhat true, partially true, that there was like a particular event that
5: tipped the scales? The idea of there being just one event, I think, doesn't hold up with the historical data that we had. I really wish there was. (laughs) It would make this so much easier because it's a question I constantly get asked. You know, when did it start? Name the place and the time. And there really isn't. And that's mainly because social change doesn't work that way. You know, it's much more complex than that. It depends on the local circumstances. But more fundamentally, I think that people would like there to be a simple narrative, you know, a nice straightforward line that would explain everything. And it could be that biology could explain some, you know, portion of what we're seeing. But what I wanted to do here was just say, why don't you put biology to one side for a second? What else can explain the way that history is and the huge amount of social variation that we see?
0: Yeah, you could really see your respect for how different People were in the past, not just from us, but from each other.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the site that you visited
5: in Turkey? Çatalhöyük. So this is one of the first places I visited because I wrote the book mainly during the pandemic. As soon as I was allowed to travel, I went straight there. Because if we're going to answer this fundamental question about origins and you want to go to the earliest place that you can, and this is really the earliest place that we have, it's more than 9,000 years old. Um, When it was occupied, it is near the Fertile Crescent. So it's in southern Anatolia, in Turkey, bordering Syria. And this settlement is fascinating because thousands of people lived here. So it's not a simple hunter gatherer community. It's a mixed community in which some people were hunting and gathering, some people were farming, depending on their circumstances, the seasons. This predates writing, so we can't know what people are thinking. But every single measure we have of gender inequality in this very sophisticated settlement that was occupied for a very long time tells us that men and women lived pretty much the same lives, that they ate the same kind of food, they did the same kind of work, they spent around the same amount of time indoors and outdoors. Even the height difference between men and women was slight, which I think is important for us to remember because we often think about sex difference as a static thing, that the physical appearance of men and women has always been the same. It's also a social quantity. It's a biological quantity, but it's also affected by how we're treated, what we eat. Women don't eat the same amount as men all over the world, and especially in some very traditional patriarchal societies, they're given a lot less food than men, depending on their households. Girls are not always treated the same as boys. But in this settlement, you don't see gender differences in how people live. And women weren't invisible either because we have so many female figurines.
0: Oh, with the goddess statues, yes.
5: (laughs) The goddess (laughs) with the so-called goddess statue, the seated woman of Chathalhuyuk. And it's really arresting. It was discovered in the 1960s and it caused a sensation at that time because here you could see what looks to be an older woman. And I say that because her skin is deeply indented She has these beautiful kind of rolls of fat spilling out all around her. And she's sitting with her back bolt upright, her arms outstretched, and underneath each hand is what looks to be a big cat or a leopard staring straight ahead. So immediately, archaeologists, Western archaeologists thought she must have been a goddess or some kind of matriarch in her society. So women weren't invisible. And as far as Chathil goes, they weren't living very different lives from men. So then the question for us is when and how did things change? Because we know, for instance, that modern day Turkey is very patriarchal.
6: We know that now and throughout history, there have been human cultures where women hold disproportionate power to men. And experts still somehow are so perplexed by societies that trace their descent through mothers, for example, that they literally call it the matrilineal puzzle. Matriliney, on the other hand, doesn't seem to require any sort of explanation. Why does it seem like the patriarchy is always assumed to be the default, even in circles where people maybe, maybe should know better?
5: I think it's partly because we naturalize it and because we're so used to it. And when I say we, I don't mean all of us, because not all of us have been raised in patriarchal societies. There are at least 160 matrilineal societies around the world. And each patriarchal society looks different. It depends on the local culture. It's slightly different. What we're used to, we just assume it has always been this way. So we see it through that lens. And when you have, for example, the Western scientific establishment since the Enlightenment has been very fixed in its belief that there is not just a gender binary, but that women and men have always occupied completely different roles throughout history. And that was partly informed by religious beliefs at the time, but also political ones that said, okay, women shouldn't be doing intellectual work or scientific work. This is why the European Academies of Science didn't admit women until well into the 20th century. They just thought we were completely different. So when you're starting with that premise, then it shouldn't surprise us that even now in the 21st century, there are still so many experts who just assume, who take for granted, it must have always been this way, even in the Paleolithic or the Neolithic, that however far you go back, if anything, it gets worse, the gender inequality gets worse, when actually the data shows us instead that there is much more variation.
0: Yeah. And I think this imagination of the past, we pick and choose what we want from the past in order to make points, to make arguments, to reassert, rules. You know, you talk about this idea of the domesticated housewife that's shown up in very different parts of the world, but you argue that it was only ever an ideal that could be entertained by the wealthy. So now is our time for today to think about the Roman Empire (laughs) 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 and also ancient Greece and talk a little bit about how you set up this relationship between domestic sphere and also democracy and the patriarchy
5: yeah it is very counterintuitive when you go back to antiquity because a lot of scholars will start there with ancient greece as an example of a society that was ancient athens in particular that was so misogynistic i mean the literature is just shockingly awful when it comes to women it's there's nothing good yeah If you were wealthy, you were expected to be cloistered inside and not show your face, be veiled all the time, you know, essentially invisible to the public world. That's not to say that all women lived like that because throughout history and into the present, working-class women have always worked and they've done all the hard labour that men have done. They've done all the jobs that men have done. But I'm talking here about the women who get written about the most, you know, the women at the top. Yeah. But we have to remember that ancient Athens was weird even by the standards of its time. It wasn't considered normal, what was happening in ancient Athens. Even within ancient Athens, they were acutely aware that the neighboring state of Sparta, for instance, women had a lot more freedom. There were girls outside tanned, doing sports alongside the boys, marrying much later, women owned property if you went to ancient Egypt, contemporaries, contemporary ancient Egypt, so with ancient Athens, there were women pharaohs and they were doing all the professions. They were working as medics. They were seen as intellects. So even within Athens, the literature itself, if you read between the lines, was a reflection of the anxiety that people were feeling that theirs was an unstable society, that it wasn't built on natural principles, but those in charge wanted it to feel like it must be natural to live this way. So they kept reinforcing it through the literature and through their rules. And occasionally you see in that literature, you know, the mask slips a little bit and they say, you know, we might not want to live this way, but we have to.
0: We don't have a choice. How does this link with citizenship and democracy?
5: Well, what's interesting is that ancient Athens, we often think of as a birthplace of democracy. And I don't know if it's fair to think of it that way, because we do have egalitarian societies in other parts of the world that predate it. But anyway, the modern idea of democracy where people get the vote, that came from ancient Athens. But again, this was a society that denied slaves the vote. Only certain free men could vote and certainly denied women the vote. So what's interesting is that modern European states later, they not only borrowed the idea of democracy from ancient Athens, but they also borrowed this idea that Women shouldn't be given the vote. (laughs) You have to ask yourself, why would you do that? It has to be that it was convenient for those in power who already had these very gendered ideas of what was appropriate that relied on women's labor in the home. So they reached into the past. They took that particular place and time. They could have taken others, they could have borrowed from ancient Egypt, which was also a very successful, sophisticated civilized society, but they didn't. They picked ancient Athens building on this idea of, you know, how ideas are, are picked up and move about
6: through societies, we know that systems of oppression are often intersectional. And this is certainly the case with the patriarchy and colonialism. Can you speak to some of the ways that
5: gender oppression spread with empires throughout history? So what was interesting for me was I moved to the US while I was writing The Patriarchs. And if you drive a few hours north of New York City, you hit one of the most important towns in America for the history of women's rights, which is Seneca Falls. So this is this beautiful, little, very little town that is essentially a museum, a homage to these women who in the 19th century, the first women's rights convention was held in Seneca Falls at the Wesleyan Chapel. And that region now is dedicated to these women and that moment. But what we're not told, or at least we weren't told until recently, in 1590, Indigenous women in that region belonging to the Haudenosaunee met to demand peace among their nations. And the reason they were able to do that was because they already had a lot of authority within their communities. Clan mothers ran government at the local level. They still do among the Haudenosaunee. So it's completely normal and natural for them to meet in this way. But what happened in the 19th century was when these women's rights activists met Haudenosaunee women, encountered what for them was the first time a society that was already offering everything that they were demanding from their government and more. It wasn't just the case that they were egalitarian, so they didn't even need the vote, but they had all these other rights within their society. And they didn't know what to think. you know, ethnologists at that time, philosophers, We're all fascinated by the Haudenosaunee, sometimes described as the Iroquois in the 19th century, because as far as they were concerned, they were building the most egalitarian state country on the planet, the United States. But how could they make that claim when there was already an even more egalitarian society already living in the United States? What they essentially said was that these societies were primitive, that they belonged to the past. And that we were all like them once, that we were all matriarchal once. And then when we became civilized, we became patriarchal, that men essentially wised up and took control of their families and took power. And obviously, the devastating consequence of that was that they tried to civilize them into patriarchy. They took children away from their families. They taught the girls how to be housewives in these boarding schools. They taught boys how to do agricultural work and be the heads of their families. They wouldn't trade with women. They forced women to name their children after the fathers rather than mothers, which you can read in the literature. There was this huge fight over that people were desperately resisting it. And men and women in indigenous societies pushed back in so many different ways. But, you know, decades and decades of being told that you're backwards, that if you want to be civilized and modern, you have to live this way. And it left a mark, with, without a doubt. And you see that story repeated all over the world, in India as well, among the Nairs of Kerala. The reason that they, Kerala is no longer matrilineal is because the British and Christian missionaries did exactly the same thing over the 19th and 20th centuries.
0: I don't want to move on to more modern times until we touch on Ur and cuneiform writing and the relationship between having a city and
5: the patriarchy. You might be wondering at this point if you're listening, well how did patriarchy start then if it wasn't agriculture <laughs> and it isn't biology then yeah how did we get to this? And the evidence that we have, which again I have to caveat with that evidence could change, but as far as we can see from what we have, the turning point was probably the emergence of the state. So what we see quite clearly in the literature, in the historical data and in Archaeological data is that when the first states emerge in regions like ancient Mesopotamia, you start to see the elites at the top of those societies start to take an interest in the family. And the reason for that, of course, is that they are obsessed with population. So, this interest in the family, which is essentially the unit of population, the smallest unit of population within a state, over time, the elites, and at the beginning this would have been women and men, start to put pressure on families to have as many children as possible and also to be available to defend the state and sometimes to even give up their lives if necessary in defending the state. Inevitably, that means that young women, the pressure falls on them to have more children than they would otherwise, so many more than they would if they were living in a hunter-gatherer society, and pressure falls on young men if they aren't giving birth to those kids to be available to defend the state. So we can start to see in those two basic drivers of that early state, that gendered preoccupation, how those binaries might have emerged, that suddenly it isn't the case that women can do anything or that men can do anything, which is the case in other societies. Subsistence living requires everyone to be available and skilled at doing everything. Now you see divisions of labor emerging. So not just gendered hierarchies, but other social hierarchies. And that persists even into the present. Keeping this discussion about state
6: interests and and state interests in preserving the patriarchy, you have this example from more recent history in your book where you talk about the gender politics that played out between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So this is a period when American feminists were actually demanding rights that women in parts of the Soviet Union already had you know, socialism obviously didn't defeat the patriarchy, but it it did go a long way towards creating conditions that would help women more fully participate in society. Can you talk
5: about some of those policies and practices that they put in place? I, I mean, I'm not trying to whitewash communism here. These were brutal authoritarian regimes, and we can see very clearly why they collapsed in the end. But certainly at the beginning, when The Russian Revolution happened. The leaders were very much committed to this idea that we are not just dismantling the class hierarchy, we are also doing as much as we can towards women's liberation. So, the Soviet Union, this was the first state, modern state, to legalize abortion. That was in 1920. And they did it wholly in the name of women's liberation, to protect women from backstreet abortions, to give them more freedom. They made it easier to get divorced, they opened up higher education across the board including technical colleges to women and to men women started doing all the same jobs that men were doing i mean there was still sexism there was still the you know these ingrained ideas about what was appropriate because these russia at least but certainly parts of eastern europe were very patriarchal before very patriarchal so people still had these ideas but it's quite remarkable how within a generation or two gender norms really did change yet There was still, you know, the pressure of this idea of population. So, for instance, Stalin, when he came into power, he reversed the legalization of abortion because birth rates were falling. And the leadership of the Communist Party, even until the end, was very, very male. They didn't change that very much. And the burden of domestic work fell disproportionately on women. To kind of bring things to the present,
6: you ultimately conclude that the patriarchy isn't one thing. You know, it's the result of the exploitation of a number of systems. Some are formal, some are informal, but they're all working together to preserve often the status quo. So how should this kind of inform how we approach the problem of gender inequality moving forward?
5: I really struggle with this because I didn't know at the end of writing The Patriarchs whether I was, I would be optimistic or pessimistic about the situation we were in. The final chapter looks at the 1979 revolution in Iran, which everyone participated in, socialists, women, you know, students, they all went out on the streets. They all felt that they were fighting for a better, more equal society. What they ended up with was this repressive, religious, conservative regime that took away even many of the rights that they already had. And everyone I spoke to, every Iranian researcher and academic that I spoke to, didn't see that changing very quickly until right at the end, when I was just finishing the book, then the protest started because of the tragic death of Masa Mini by the morality police in Iran. And suddenly everything flipped. You know, people were out in the streets in huge numbers. Even now, even though the regime has tried to push back against those protests, women now in Iran are saying, we don't have to listen to you anymore. You can tell us to straighten our hijabs, but we're not. That's up to us now. So I couldn't help then but be hopeful that that, you know, like I was saying earlier, this idea that social conflict is constantly changing things and driving things. People don't put up with unfair societies forever. We just don't. And if there is, you know, I hesitate to talk about human nature, but certainly one thing that we do feel strongly as humans is that sense of injustice or a sense of unfairness. You see that even in toddlers. Absolutely. You treat two kids differently, they will know immediately. And they will feel bad for the kid that's being treated worse than them. So we feel that really strongly. And as long as that's the case, then I think we have to be hopeful. Wonderful.
0: All right, Angela, thank you so much for talking with us and for hosting this year. Valerie, I'm so glad that you came. You're so instrumental
5: in this series and it's not every time that we get to hear from you.
6: Yeah, I was very pleased to be here
5: today. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I just want to say I felt like I was interviewed by my bosses. (laughs) It's really nice to... (laughs) You two know exactly what you're doing.
0: (laughs) This is it for our Sex and Gender series for 2023. And next year's book series is in the works and will launch in the middle of 2024. So stay tuned for that. And if you've missed any of this year's series, Visit science.org slash podcast for a link to the episode list. That concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on the podcasting apps, search for Science Magazine. Or you can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell with production help from Podigy. Special thanks to Angela Saini and Valerie Thompson for all their work on the book segments. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool Access topic specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org A-A-A-S join. That's aaasorg join.